This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. And I wanted to extend the walls of my practice five years ago now, so I started self-work. I want to reach out to those of you who are already very interested in psychological or emotional issues, maybe you're in therapy, to those of you who might just have been diagnosed with something and you're looking for answers, or you're having a relationship problem that's just unsettling and won't seem to resolve itself, but also to a third group who might tell your friends, oh, therapy, eh, never do that, but you're just interested enough or unhappy enough to listen into self-work. Welcome, welcome to all of you. As a therapist, I've been honored by many to try to help them work through their grief, and grief can be raw, it can cut off your ability to breathe deeply or feel like you're even breathing at all or that you want to. But when I met Leslie Streeter, I knew I had to have her on self-work. She has such important things to say about grief, things that come from the sudden death of her husband. Who is she? Leslie Gray Streeter is an author, veteran journalist, and speaker. Her memoir, Black Widow, was published in March 2020. Until fairly recently, in fact, she was an entertainment and lifestyle columnist and writer for the Palm Beach Post. Now she lives in Baltimore, Maryland. She's a University of Maryland graduate. Her work has been featured at the Washington Post, the Atlanta Journal, the Seattle Times, the Atlantic. She's been on the Today Show, Sirius XM, Oh, she's been in the Oprah Magazine. And she says about herself, I'm a slow runner, an amateur vegan cook, and a true crime and law and order enthusiast. <laughs> but she's been very accomplished. I wouldn't have known that just by talking with her. She doesn't toot her own horn. Far from it. She's very down-to-earth and right there with you when she talks with you. You'll hear that in her interview. She can be very naturally funny. She has a beaming smile. But she's also telling a very transparent story of how she survived through the sudden and, of course, awful death of her husband, Scott. Her book is also one of the most, if not the most, gritty version of the hell you go through when you lose someone you love that I've ever read. She talks about the things you do to try and cope, some helpful and some self-destructive. How you can need others and how you can isolate from them. How you can sob one minute and be making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich the next as you simultaneously live out the horrific sadness of a moment that you don't want to live through while you're also needing to be in your life because you're needed in your life. You have to work. You have to take care of your children. You have to unravel what your loved one left behind. And all brings with it a multitude of emotions and experiences that she actually chronicled almost from day one. Writing was her profession, but it was also her avenue for expression and had always been. And this time that writing became a story for us all to hear. For death comes in the middle of life and life goes on. Where it hit Leslie was right when she was adopting their foster son that they had fostered for several years. She had to go on in that process despite Scott's death. 
a process that they'd worked on and planned and worried and rejoiced about for years. She had to continue walking the path that the two of them had dreamed of walking together, as perhaps many of you who are actively grieving have done as well. Why am I offering this conversation now? Because in entering the holiday season, not only am I aware of millions of people around the world and almost 800,000 people here in the U.S. who have died from COVID. Each one of those people had families and friends, co-workers and neighbors who are grieving their absence. And of course, there have been deaths all year. I want to offer all of you the story of someone who got through her grief, who has moved forward, and I, of course, hope that will be helpful. Before we hear from Leslie, however, here's a message from BetterHelp. I'm always honored when one of you reaches out to me to ask, hey, could I see you? Unfortunately, right now, I can only see people in Arkansas, but I do have a suggestion for you. I've personally found that BetterHelp, the leading online therapeutic counseling service, is really a great option, and I've partnered with them here at SelfWork to provide you with a professional, very affordable, and trustworthy source of help, no matter where you live. In fact, BetterHelp has been a sponsor of SelfWork for more than a year, and I can't tell you how much it's meant to have their help and support here on the program. But of course, before any kind of relationship happened, I tried BetterHelp myself. They use only licensed therapists, meaning licensed professional counselors, social workers, marriage and family therapists, probably even some psychologists, and they match you up with someone likely in the same state as you if you're here in the United States. But I want to talk about what really stood out for me. I saw two different counselors, or (laughs) I didn't see them, but I worked with them. For one thing, it was very convenient, and they both tried their best to meet my schedule. The second thing was, you know, those of you on the podcast often write reviews or send me emails that say, hey, I really like that you make direct suggestions on what to try, real tangible recommendations. And the two counselors I tried did that as well. It's not that empathy in a listening ear isn't valuable. Sometimes we all can benefit from working through emotions in a safe relationship. However, I believe you get hope when you see yourself handling emotions that previously you couldn't, or maybe you speak up in meetings where before you didn't care enough to, or maybe your confidence was shot. You want to be able to see real change in yourself. Both of them actually offered worksheets for me to use to get a little deeper into things outside of the session. So I walked away with ideas. You know, we're still in the middle of a pandemic and everyone's lives have been challenged to a lesser or greater extent for a year or more. So that's the backdrop we all have to deal with. And BetterHelp wants to be there for you. But also because you listen to self-work, you do have a really good offer for them. You'll receive a 10% discount on your first month of service if you use this code, trybetterhelp.com slash selfwork. That's trybetterhelp.com slash selfwork. And you'll find a counselor uniquely chosen for your preferences and needs. And then, of course, write me and let me know how it goes. If your first counselor isn't a great fit for you, they'll find somebody else, just like in non-online therapy. And after all, so many counselors are only working online these days, and BetterHelp isn't expensive. So try better help because reaching out can be so vital to your mental health. And now without further ado, here's my conversation as I thoroughly enjoyed listening to again. Here's Leslie Streeter.
Y'all aren't going to believe the power and the beauty and the poignancy of the writer and author I have on today. Her name is Leslie Streeter, and I read her book, Black Widow, over the weekend, and my husband came in and said, you've got tears in your eyes. And I said, I know. And there's a reason why. And Leslie, I'm just so glad you're here at Self Work. Thank you. Oh, my God. Thank you for having me. It's so funny. Someone the other day said something similarly complimentary. And I thought, and I said, it's so weird sometimes to remember that the weird stuff in your head, when you put it out there, that it's out there. So when people say, you know, completely, um, sincerely, how much what I wrote about and what happened in my life and how, you know, we dealt with it, how much it means to them. You just remember that sometimes things happen. I don't think things happen for a reason. I don't think like bad things happen so people can learn from them. But I think if you can, you, if you can use any of that pain to help other people, it's really cool. Um, and it's, you know, the book came out a, over like a, almost a year and a half ago now. And it's still, I'm still getting responses almost every day. Oh, I bet you are finding it. So I'm really, I'm just, you know, honored that I was able to do that. So let me make sure self-work listeners know what we're talking about. Your husband died very suddenly and you decided to write about it. But actually the book is so much more than that. It's not only a story of that grief journey, as you call it, for <laughs> those who don't want to read a book about a journey. But it's a, it's a story about your love for one another and how you actually came to embrace and, and meld and acknowledge. And I wrote several words here, curious about the different ethnicities that you came from and the different religions you came from. It's it's a story about you being a writer. It's a story about how you became a foster parent and now a, a parent. But I want to start with a a quote that's, I don't know where it is in the book. Yeah. I, I, I wrote several down. Grief is an eternal reminder that you can't crawl out of your own skin. I just love that. But in the book, you say, a friend of Scott said, sure, write a book about all this, but write about Scott. Yeah. And I feel like that if Scott had walked in the room after I read this book, I would have said, oh, hi, Scott. (laughs) I felt like I knew him. And that's a lot about you as a writer, but also just how much you conveyed his joy and his spirit and his vulnerabilities and everything about him. So let's hear that story from you. And I have to say that that's such an honor because that's all I really wanted to do. Like his friend, Jason, yes, said to me, please write about Scott, the person, not just a guy who died. And so from then on, that was my, um, that was my mission. That was in everything I wrote. I want to make sure that I was telling the truth, not just my truth. Obviously everybody's truth is different. Some people use that as a reason to tell lies. Well, that's my truth that you did that. Not mine, you know, right, right, right. What I wanted to do was say this person, this is, my angle of this person, but this person didn't just belong to me. He belonged to so many people. And I wanted to do him right by making sure, like I said, like Jason said that what you got out of it is not just the sliver of the importance that he meant to me, but a sense of how, how much he meant to so many people. Um, So the brief version is that he and I met in high school in Baltimore. Um, I was a dork. He, drove a Camaro and gambled had a gambling thing in the hallway, rode a, drove a Camaro. Um, yeah, he was, you know, he was kind of rebellious. I mean, he was probably a dork deep inside his soul. 
but outwardly he was kind of like bad boy and like skip class and yeah you know had carried the racing form in his pocket i mean he was that guy i was oh okay um so we didn't really run in the same circles but he went to college with my twin sister at saint mary's college in southern maryland um I went to University of Maryland, big, huge school. And um, she would say, hey, remember that guy, Scott? And I would go, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Didn't matter. <laughs> so 20 years go by, and our class is getting back together on Facebook to do our plan our reunion, the 20th reunion, which would have been, which was in uh, 2009. And I was like, oh, he's, he friended me and said, would you like to get a drink? I happen to be in South Florida. And I see that you're in Florida. And I go, yeah, whatever. And we did. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. He might be cute. Yeah. So, and that that's how that all started. So we were together for six and a half years, married five and a half years. Um, and then he died of a heart attack very suddenly, middle of night, when he was 44. And I was, we were, he was almost 45. Um, it was about a month and a half from his 45th birthday. And at that point, you know, you just, like I said, things happen and you go, okay, I have to deal with this. I don't want to deal with this. And the only way I've ever known how to deal with anything is right. The only thing I've ever known, way I've known how to process. That was a question I actually had for you, because as I read the book, it almost sounded like you began writing immediately. Pretty much. I, that's what it sounded like. I, I, I mean, did. I didn't know if that was a, a writing technique or whether that was the no, way it was. It's pretty... Um, I mean, I'm a columnist, so I do other things, but I'm primarily a columnist. So I write in first person all the time. It's just sort of like, you know, how I process things. But it's not in the book, but it's on some other things I've written that the day that Scott died, my friend Scott Iman, who is a very well-known New York Times bestselling Hollywood historian, contributor for TCM, um, was in my house, in my kitchen, and he had always said to me, I always say, why can't I finish a book? I try to write books and I can't finish them. And he'd always said to me, you'll finish the book you have to finish. The book that you need to finish will be finished. And I said to him in my kitchen, I think this is my book. It just came out. Wow. Scott had been, my Scott had been dead maybe seven hours. And he said, kid, I think it is. Uh, Sally, I think it is. And I, from that moment on, for many reasons. One, because I wanted, I was like, I'm going to finish. It just got in my head. Got to finish book. I'm like, this could be a book I finish. And because I thought, you know, at that point, I'm suddenly a single mother, you know, even though I, my job was still in existence and that kind of thing. I was like, I might need more money. Money would be good. Also, I, I just needed to get it out of my skin. Like that line about not being able to crawl out of your own skin. You know, unfortunately, that when you're in grief, it just engulfs you. So it feels like you can't get it out of your brain or out of your heart. It feels like physically you can just feel the weight of it, like in how much you sleep or how heavy you feel when you walk around and you can't get out of it. And you want to desperately, even for five minutes to breathe, crawl out of your body and you can't. And I couldn't. So I decided to write my way out of it. I think that's a wonderful way. I mean, certainly, I encourage people to journal who are doing exactly, you know, they're not a writer and they're not writing a book, but they are trying to force themselves to put down in black and white what is, is going on in their soul and their brain and their and their lungs and their heart and every other part of their being that and what they see their children going through. I mean, it's just a way to 
Well, in journaling, it's a way to at least make sure you are inching through uh, what you're going through, that you're not, you're not getting stuck, although people get stuck sometimes anyway. So I, I just think th- that was, it sounds like Scott would think that was a wonderful idea as well. He would have. He was always very encouraging to me, and he always he was my cheerleader. Even if it was like whatever it was, if it was like the you know fake dancing with the stars performance I talked about, or like doing a slow half marathon or whatever, he was always <laughs> like my cheerleader. My sister and I ran right when we got engaged, ran um, the half marathon in Baltimore, and I see him at the finish line right before the finish line, and like run over. I stumble over. I'm so tired. And I hug him and he says, you know who finished in front of you? Like a dude pushing a stroller and a lady in a wheelchair. <laughs> I was like, ah. but that was him. That was him. And I was too tired to punch him because I just had to get across the finish line. But yeah, he was that jerk. He was hilarious. And he was so encouraging, even if he was always making a joke, but he wanted me to understand how much he believed in me. And I think he he would know. He he would be he would hope he would have wished that the book could be about something else than him dying. But you yeah, know, exactly. I, he was always very um, very encouraging of me and my writing. So, I also have talked a lot about trauma on self work, and actually, you know, having your husband die suddenly and in your home and all that kind of thing is. Can you talk? about how you began to, again, inch your way through that, through that trauma? Well, you know, I am a big believer in therapy. Uh, my therapy sessions are in my book. Um, mm-hmm. And grief therapy is something that I sought out um, pretty close. He died in July, almost August. He died on July 29th, 2015. So I was probably in therapy by September. Um it was just important to me. I mean, I have so many people not only in my life to talk to, but I have my mother is a psych nurse and, you know, I have so many, one of my very best friends um, has a, a master's in psychology. So I'm and as a counselor, I'm surrounded by people, but I, obviously you need someone outside of that experience sure, know, to, of course. to talk to and someone who didn't know me. Although it's funny, she admitted to me much later that she read my column and knew who I was. I'm like, okay. <laughs> What are you going to do? And she didn't mention it at first. I think I don't think she mentioned it until the second time I went back to her, because I think I went to her that fall and then stopped. And then I went to her again in 2019 um, when I was preparing for my book to come out, because I knew I was going to be talking about these things again. Right. And I felt that since she was four years later, she was still available. I knew that she would be a good person. She knew what I'd gone through and because she'd been there. And that, pardon me, she'd be a good person to kind of help me get through that. But yeah, I mean, therapy was very important. Uh, yoga was very important. In what way? Um, a gentle connection to my body again and to uh-huh. my breathing and to being, having to be in your, in your thoughts, but not in like a torturous, oh my God, I can't crawl out of my skin way, but in a everything inside my body is part of my breath and part of my body and part of this, this pose or this posture that I'm doing. And it was just, cause at first I was terrified of it cause I didn't stillness is bad. You know, although when you're in grief, everything is bad. Stillness is bad. Sound is bad. Alone is bad. Together is bad. It's just bad. Um, but that was very helpful to me. Um, 
working out was really great. Well, um, I wanted you to tell the story about Victor. Because <laughs> I almost, I just went, yeah, when I heard that story. Victor is amazing. And we, we keep in touch. He's um, He and his family had moved north. I saw him about a year ago when I was getting ready, a year and a half ago now, when I was getting ready to um, launch my book. He came down and helped me, you know, for two weeks and helped me, you know, get it moving. But, um, and he's back in Florida now. Victor was just this person. He couldn't lie to you if he tried. He was that, he's that kind of person that's just, and even when he's trying not to tell you something, you know that something's up. And it's usually, and he's a trainer, right? He's a trainer. He was my trainer. Um, We don't live in the same state anymore, but yeah, he's, um, he's just straight ahead guy. He's a guy that very much respected Scott and Scott very much respected. And he felt it was his, duty to be the one to kind of bring me back sort of to that part of myself, which is, you know, I, I'm, you know, a not small girl, but I've always loved working out. I, you know, run walk very slowly now, but I'm always doing stuff. I'm sitting right here with my fitness bands right next to me. There you um, go. You know, I'm always, that's always something that was important to me. And health wise and mentally, I needed to do that because I gained so much weight right after Scott died and I was sad. I was drinking too much and eating too much and lying in the bed watching Dateline too much. And I needed in a practical sense not to die because my child now only had one parent and I needed to be alive and functioning and healthy and stuff. And I just, I just feel better. So he helped me mostly by not only like physically putting me through paces, but like saying things like, you're what you've got and you can't rely on other people and you're not some rich person that someone else is going to do something to. You can't like, you got to do this. And, um, well, at one point you say you just had, he got you to say to him, I know I'm not dead. I know I'm not dead. dead." And (laughs) he was, you didn't die. I was like, Oh geez. And it felt like I'm, you know, pop culture reporter for many years. So, Movie quotes are very big to me. And so I kept thinking about the line from um, Officer Officer and a Gentleman where um, Richard Gere comes back to training and Lewis Gossett Jr. says, why did you come back? And he says, because I got nowhere else to go. And he's standing in the rain. I got nowhere else to go. And I felt that way sometimes with Victor as I'm like literally like crawling upstairs, hoping that I would like eat me at the top of the stairs. And I would go down the steps to a bend where he couldn't see me and go and then pause and then we're back up. He's like, well, you're taking too long down there. Are you pausing? Did you stop? I was like, yeah. So eyes in the back of your head thing. It's a really funny story um, that actually pertains to James Patterson, who has been wonderful to me, who was actually on the cover. Uh, I noticed he, he, yeah, he gave you a great review in the book. He's been amazing to me years before that. When Scott was still, was I can't remember. I think Scott was still alive then. Um, I can't remember. I think he was. Um, Victor and I were training, and we were at that outdoor mall downtown that used to be called City Place in West Palm Beach. And he'd have me run it up and down the steps, and then he had me run around the top of the place to where the movie theater was and back. So I'm like, oh, Lord. And I see James Patterson getting movie tickets. And I go, hi, Mr. Patterson. He goes, hey. And he just starts talking to me. And I'm like, Victor's going to come looking for me, but um, I'm talking to James Patterson Patterson and he's not going to be mad at me. So I can see him over my shoulder 
know, angrily marching over to me and he stops and he looks at me, he goes, Oh, hello, James Patterson. <laughs> like, I will not, and he said, I swear if it had been anybody else, you'd be in trouble. I'm like, you can't kill me. I was talking to James Patterson. I told him that story, James Patterson, that story later, we thought it was hilarious. Um, yeah, but no, Victor is just one of those people. I truly, tough love is such a cliche thing, but it's really true. And it's not like for the sake of being tough, it's sometimes it's like that's the only thing that you're going to respond to at that moment. Right. Is that toughness that you you can't you're not going to respond to lies or soft stroking of your hand or gentle whispers and affirmations in your ear. Sometimes it's like effort. Yeah, exactly. Fun. And I, you know, that's, you, you say in the book, you you had to be careful to not use up your pity allowance there for a while. <laughs> you know I never heard mean? that phrase. I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, It's true. And I said it's like, you know, when the analogy I think I made at that point in the book was that like when you have a breakup and you know, you can only be too pathetic because your friends are going to go, Oh my God, it wasn't like you weren't betrothed. It wasn't written in the angels. It's a guy you dated for six months. <laughs> Suck it up. We're going back to work. Stuff. No one wants to see your dumb movie. You don't get to like control the TV anymore. Yeah. So right. um, your pity allowance is over. And I just, and it's sad to me too, because people, there are people who read that and said, you know, there was no allowance with us. Like, like with pe- real people who know you, I mean, if I was being pathetic for no reason and looking for pity. Yeah. But if it's a real, if I'd really needed something, nobody would have been like, eh, we're done with you. You've reached your quota, but it feels that way because part of what I, the work that I have done, it sounds so pompous, the work that I've done, but what I have done since I've been in this grief space is to champion the idea of people who grieve, particularly women and to carry that into other parts of our lives to get away from the idea that we're taking up too much space or that our grief takes up too much space. You know what I mean? Or that that's the thing. Like when our mothers or grandmothers or whoever were very sad, but they had to get up and make everybody dinner anyway. And they had to make it and go, no, no, it's fine. They're that thing where you're comforting people who are trying to comfort you because you feel uncomfortable taking up that space. I mean, you shouldn't block the door (laughs) as you're taking up space, but you shouldn't apologize for being a human being who's been hurt either. And I, I think that for me, I really do think of it also as a, because I'm a woman going through that space that we've been taught. No, there's a limit to it. There's an expiration date on when you can show this stuff. And now you got to make everyone else comfortable, at least not make them actively uncomfortable. Right, right. And that's your job. And that that overshadows any kind of grief that you might be going oh, for through. Sure. Just having a, one of those days that, again, your your brain isn't functioning or whatever it is. Yeah. Okay, so al- alongside the trying to grieve Scott, you were also going through this process with your son Brooks of you had been, y'all had been fostering him, and then you wanted to adopt. And so... The interplay of of those two things was just fascinating to read and how the despondency and the waiting and the timing and all of that with Brooks was just, sometimes it was distraction at red light, sometimes it was just added to the pain because Scott wasn't there to do all of that with you. Sometimes it was like, by damn, I'm going to do this because this is what Scott and I planned. It was mostly the third. It was just like, this is a thing we have to do. Um, and we have to do it. You know, this is the thing that two of us were doing, and then he wasn't here to do it, so I had to finish it. You know, also and you, my kid. And you desperately love 
Brooks. I mean, oh, yeah, you know. he's my babe, you know. And yeah. I mean, he's now an annoying seven year old person. So sometimes it's like, oh, because that's <laughs> humans do that to you. What have I done? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, but no, he's the best thing in my life. I have no regrets about that. And I just knew, like I said, we were already on that path. And I was like, we're going to keep going because he's my child. You know, I had someone that I had met not long after. Um, it was an older gentleman who was a widow who a friend of mine knew him. She was working with him doing some writing. And she goes, well, my friend is in town. And it wasn't like a fix up or anything because he was like in the 70s. Like just, you know, to have lunch with someone and maybe there's something. And he's mostly writing about men in grief, but maybe there's something that you could help him with, whatever. So I bring Brooks with me and he's two. And we're in this... Um, and I'm still checked out really. It's maybe a month later and he's, um, sitting in his booth at a diner and the guy is clearly annoyed because Brooks is, you know, being a two-year-old and he's crawling over me and whatever. And look, Oh, it's a waffle. Oh, it's a knife. Oh, it's a thing. And everyone's waving at him like, hi, cute little boy. And the guy goes, so how do you feel about single motherhood? And I was like, what? Because he said it in a way like I had a choice. Like, And I was like, what are you saying? I'm going to give him back? Or he goes, no, but I know that's what he was thinking. Like, well, it's just an adoption and it's not done yet. Maybe. You, and I just just like this. Oh, my God. Kid, dude. I mean, I just. Ugh. But um, it was also funny, too. I forgot. I forget sometimes that during the time Brooks, we knew about him in 2013 and the time he came to live with us in early 2015 until the end of August, the end of July, 2016. I had not shared pictures of him. I couldn't, cause I couldn't, you know, cause you know, can't do with foster kids. The rules so, of, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So on Facebook, we referred to him as baby Z or the kid we live with or that kind of thing. So there's no pictures and stuff. So I forget sometimes because he's always been a part of my life that I go back to times between uh, him coming to live with us and then the adoption being final, which was the year after Scott died and that so many people were going, Oh my God, we can finally see his picture. And I go, Oh, I forgot. I forgot how much of that journey. Ha ha. I had to hold separate. <laughs> now, uh, and Bill, you know, my, you know, my, the title of my book is uh, a sad, funny journey through grief for people who normally avoid books with, words like journey in the title. And I'll explain that in a minute. I was just about to show your book. Yeah. So there we go. <laughs> so a lot of it really is just that I was used to, you know, talking about my life and being very open and stuff on, on Facebook or whatever, but also as a person who always had some somewhat of a public profile, you know what to keep back. And there was no choice about that. I had to keep that mm-hmm. back. And to this mm-hmm. day, mm-hmm. I still don't post everything that happens in my life. And I'm careful about the photos that I post outside of my private Facebook. I post pictures of his face occasionally, but not Not so much, but all that to say that all of this stuff was going on. And I felt like I could share it with everything with a very small group of people. Um, but which was like therapy was great. And I had all these great social workers on both the Maryland side and the Florida side. And I just was getting it done and I was healing and I was, you know, trying to be healthy and I was working and I had started writing the book. Like you said, I'd started writing it. um, The first part of it, which is the very first thing I wrote was that first chapter about standing in the graveyard. And I started writing that a month, maybe 
after I bought a, one of the things I used the insurance money was to buy a computer. Oh. Because <laughs> I wanted to write it. So I bought a computer and I just started writing. You know, I just started writing. And so that book was being written in real time. I mean, it was being. That's exactly what it read like. And I was. I was shocked a little bit, and then I thought, well, but this makes a lot of sense. It would be like if you were a composer and you began writing music, or if you were a visual artist that you began creating something. I mean, it's just, it was your outlet and your talent, and so it made all the sense in the world when I, when I put it in that context. Thank you. And that's what actually is one of the, I won't call it a charm of the book, but it's a facet of the book that... It, does it feels like we're just walking beside you and that's i don't read many books like that so i really enjoyed it because of that um i want to get off the topic a little bit of grief because i also thought an integral part of the story was what you two learned and how and how you began to understand each other's ethnicity and religion and how you, I just, especially in these days and times, I think it's so important for people to know people who do this well. (laughs) And what you said about Scott was he understood parts of my culture while passionately embracing his. And I, I loved that statement as, you know, wouldn't it be nice if there was more of that? Thank you. And I think that, for a lot of the country, because we're still, we continue, and unfortunately now still so much more are a segregated nation, that I had a much more integrated childhood than in growing up than most people do. And I think that Scott did as a white person who grew up in a neighborhood that was mostly black and Jewish, he had a much more- You call it speckled. Yeah, it black was. Speckled. speckled. Exactly. <laughs> he had a much more, he was much more- much more comfortable and much more used to being the minority or closer to it than most people in this country are that are white because we should say he was white and he, and he was Jewish. Yes. So. And he was Jewish. And so he was much more used to that. So there were things I didn't have to explain to me. Once again, he was not black. I was not Jewish. We still, there were things we did not know about those things. So I want to say people who go, Oh, I was like, I was raised there. It's like, doesn't mean that there's nothing to do with the, when you walk out of a house you're still a white person or you're still a black person living in Mormon territory, whatever it is, you know, you're still you. But I think that we started from a place where we were not a mystery. It wasn't like a Hallmark movie where, you know, you're from New York and you want to be an Amish country and you've never been there before and they've never right. met you before. Right. It's not, it's not right. wasn't like that. I had dated other Jewish guys and white guys. He dated other black women and women who were of color. So it wasn't like this big pronounced thing with a T, but that was helpful because I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was an experiment. He didn't feel he was an experiment. I didn't feel like there was like a fetishization or anything like that. It was just, we got each other and we dug each other. And then we were really excited about finding out the other things about each other. There was never. And that's what came across. There was such curiosity. Oh, yeah. And and just, and you use the term embracing. And, um, uh, and you know, when he died, you had the confusion of how, how did Jewish people, you know, how do they do this? Well, we and you were trying to honor no uh, as much as you could of theirs. And then you're being Baptist and black. I looked at it and thought. I hope this is a part of the book that people also learn from. I've gotten a lot of comments about that, a lot of very positive comments about that 
that aspect of the book. So I appreciate it. Well, and it's, it is the way you lived. He and you lived. And so that is, you know, and I, I live now in a different part of Baltimore than I grew up in, but my, you know, my son's friends are both black and white. Um, he has a couple of, you know, girls that he plays with, you know, they're, he's the youngest at seven. The oldest, I think is 13. Um, he lives his life in a place that is, you know, a lot, mo- a lot of his family is white. A lot of his family is black. Some are Jewish. Some are, um, are Christian. Some are, don't believe in much of anything. Um, my friend group, the larger group that he plays with my college girlfriends, we were, we are collectively, Black, Irish American, Scottish American, Sri Lankan, Australian American, and random white girl. Um, So so the better known as RWG. You know, so we're all different things, and four of us, including my sister, my friend, Anne, my friend, Sonali, and I all have kids 10 and, and younger, even though we're all 50 this year. And so the group of kids, his friend group is just very long, very wide. This is just the way that my son is raised, that people, That's wonderful. there are differences. I mean, I've never been one of those people who go, there's no difference in any way because differences are something to be celebrated, but differences are not supposed to be something that makes you better than someone else. Mm-hmm. Or make someone else better than you. I think that we get into this thing where we go, no, don't talk about race. Don't talk about religion. Why not? It's there. I would never ask someone not to talk about being Scottish or never talk about being Jewish or whatever. Why should I not be proud of of who I am? I just don't think it makes me better than you. And it doesn't make you better than me. We can all bring our own food and bring our own thing to the discussion and talk about it and share it. And like talk about the ways in which our histories intertwine and which they don't and which some of our traditions. Like I became obsessed years ago with the idea that every culture has a thing that's a pocket, like dumplings or ravioli or, you know, grits. grits. And everyone has a use of corn. There's all like, everybody has a pocket. And that wouldn't be like pierogies, you know, whatever, which I think is what I'm having for lunch. Um, Ooh, yum. You know, and just that so many of the things that we developed in different places of the world were all sort of out of necessity and we all figured it out or whatever. And I just wish that we could feel more comfortable talking about these things rather than pretending they don't exist so people don't feel bad about it or holding them as some sort of test over each other. Well, I agree with you. I I live in Northwest Arkansas that is not a very populated culturally with, it's not very diverse, certainly, but I have certainly had people as patients who, and I have friends who are not the same ethnicity and just history I have. And, and so we talk about it and I learn from them and I try to get to educate myself as best I can about um, what, what their world is like. And, and, and so how can I help them? Because Mm -hmm. I, you know, I've come from a different place, but that doesn't mean that I can't be curious and learn and then go, Oh, well, given that, what about this? I wanted to end the interview by asking you uh, about a statement you made. You said, I am not the same person. How are you different than the person who wrote the book? Um, Oh my gosh, now I am older. I'm 50 now. I was 44 when I started writing the book, and now I feel like a wizened crone. That's not true. Um, I feel really good about myself. Um, I have absolute evidence that I can get through 
things I had never considered that I would have to get through. And I think if you had asked me in June 2015, I said, oh, I'm a strong person. I had been through like the death of my father, for instance, and other stuff, you know, marriage things happen, you know, and, you know, there had been like some financial ups and downs, whatever. And I could not have imagined widowhood or single motherhood or any of that. But I was like, I would have said, yeah, I, I could probably do it. And I probably also would have been like kind of annoyingly self-deprecating about it, which is another thing I want women to stop doing. I want women to start <laughs> to stop acting as if we have to put an asterisk on our strength and go, oh, it wasn't that big a deal. Oh, but my butt is big. Oh, whatever. It's like, just say, yeah, I kicked butt today. I did a really great thing. And I own that stuff a lot more. And it's not just because other people tell me, but they do. But it's because I see it. I see things happen and I just go, let's make this happen. Like we moved in the middle of COVID and we, I quit my job um, of 18 years at the post and we packed up everything. I took money out of my 401k. I bought a house. I started another job that was a corporate communications kind of a thing. Wasn't for me, you know, some of the work was very interesting, but it didn't allow me to do what I know I have to do, which is stuff like this, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and which is I'm doing really great freelance right now. Like I just did a story for the Washington post magazine, I've, oh, that's neat. Which is neat. I've done some stuff for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. I just finished a stint as the recapper for the Bachelorette for the Seattle Times. I'm doing <laughs> really fun stuff and some other projects, writing uh, biographies for recording artists. I mean, just some really cool stuff. And doing this kind of work, like talking about grief and talking about um, growth and, you know, being a human. And that that's something I do. So I quit my job, quit my other job. So, and I was because like, that's a big enough job in and of itself. It is. And, that, and <laughs> now I'm still waiting for the money to be whatever, but it wasn't about that. It was about um, knowing that I had a voice. And I think that what I went through and what I wrote a book about taught me that life is very short, nothing is guaranteed, and life isn't waiting for you to find the right time to be happy. And I had to do it i just got to a point it was right around the time i quit my uh corporate thing was right around the time that the paperback of black widow came out in february and i went on vacation i spent a week doing like interviews and like doing some promotional stuff whatever and i was exhausted but i thought this is a good exhausted i feel really good about this like yeah i gotta quit (laughs) i I want this to be what i do and not that um and so i think that i made that decision a lot more confidently i mm-hmm. second guessed it less than i would have mm-hmm. i couldn't have imagined having quit a job without having a full-time job waiting right for me um previous to this and um i did because i knew that it was the right thing to do and i had no regrets i mean once again would like to have more money but otherwise everything else <laughs> i'm doing like i i get to do this i get to talk to you i get to you know, schedule things and be there for my kid. And, you know, um, I just get to be in a place both mentally, physically, and emotionally where I can look down the road and go, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. And, um, and know that I'm there and that I'm headed even more to that place. So yeah, that, that's how. Well, it sounds like a belief certainly in your own strengths and at the same time saying, I really can tolerate not knowing I can I because we don't really ever know you know what you 
you articulated that so well. I think that when you are, I don't even think it's just younger, because unfortunately there are younger people who learn these lessons through tragedy and whatever earlier than maybe I did. But I think that it's about, you're not comfortable not knowing. You're, when you're young, when you're really, really young, you're dumb, and you go, woohoo, everything's going to last forever. And it's just a gift and a mystery. Ah! <laughs> Um, but I read something by a coach, and I wish I could remember her name. And the para- I'm going to paraphrase it. That basically says, the seeds you're the seeds you're planting now are not the fruit that you're eating today. They're the fruit that you're going to eat tomorrow. Meaning that you have to do the work now and not necessarily see the immediate results or benefit or reward from because that's what you're going to eat on later. That's yeah. That's yeah. the future thing. And I thought, oh, my God, that makes so much sense. So I can't just say I can't do that if you don't pay me right now. Now, freelancing is funny. And, um, yeah, you do have to chase people. I hate chasing. I hate that part of it. The, hello, where's my money? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're an entrepreneur. And stuff. You know how that is. But you got to be oh, like yeah. one. So because um, before I was used to that's a perfect example. I was always used to having a part a full time job. I've had full-time job supporting myself since I was 22 years old. Right. So I always had my insurance paid for. I always had like health insurance or then eventually life insurance or something of that nature, 401k, something, at least at the very least a steady paycheck and being okay with saying, I'm going to have to cut back a little or leach into my savings or whatever, because I know that's the fruit I'm planning today is for tomorrow Exactly. And I'm willing to be a little uncertain and, and trust do, myself in the process. So and trust myself in the process go. and not second guess myself, not let other people's voices like tell me that I should be. Well, I mean, everyone I know, thankfully, was very supportive of it. Well, I'm glad you make self work and me <laughs> a part of your decision to, you know, just hang out. So <laughs> thank you, Leslie, so much. And again, her book is Black Widow. And I, I recommend it on a lot of different levels. I shared with Leslie before the interview that I actually lost a family member suddenly two weeks ago, right before I read the book. And so for any of you who have something like that, that you're trying to live through and learn from and, you know, step back into your own life because your own life is not over, then, you know, that that is something that her book can teach and lead you through. And so I appreciate it personally. I appreciate it because of being uh, the host here at Self Work. And I'm so glad I met you. And we have a mutual friend in Florida who introduced us and we were on a panel. And I'm just absolutely tickle pink, as we'd say in Arkansas. <laughs> Thank you. And can I say very quickly, also people, want people know that it's also funny. The book is also funny. It's not just oh, yeah. about grief. Well, you can tell that. Yeah, it's hilarious. And I'm funny. So that's where the book is. So when you're going, oh my God, why do I want to read about someone else's pain? That's dumb. Also understand that I'm encouraging people not to do like slipping on a banana peel funny. It's not that kind of funny. It's more like the ironic thing that happens in your life when you're trying to keep going. It's that kind of funny. Sometimes it's yeah, like you called yourself the the black Carrie Bradshaw, except it should be called no sex in the city. No sex in the city, man. It's stuff like that. So I encourage you um, to pick it up and it's not all a downer. Yeah, there's the death stuff, but there's also some really uplifting, nice stuff in it. And it works out fine in the end. So it does. It does. So spoiler. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's a great spoiler alert. Thank you so very much. Thank you.
Thank you so much for being with me and Leslie here on Self Work. I hope that this conversation has been helpful to all of you. I want to remind you of a new podcast that I'm starting on Fireside. All you have to do is go to firesidechat.com slash Margaret Rutherford. Again, that's firesidechat.com slash Margaret Rutherford. And we can interact on a podcast together. I can answer your questions right when you ask them. So if you have an iPhone, Please request access again by going to firesidechat.com slash Margaret Rutherford. I also want to remind you that you can give me a gift, and that gift is a rating or review wherever you listen to self-work. It takes just a few minutes, especially a rating that just takes a couple of seconds, and a written review is always appreciated because I like to hear what you get out of self-work. And of course, share self-work with your friends your neighbors, your coworkers, you're my best marketing team, as I've often said. You can reach out to me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. You can go to my website at DrMargaretRutherford.com and subscribe. All you will get from me is a weekly newsletter, which will include my blog post for the week, as well as this podcast. It's an easy way to keep in touch. We've got a very full December season coming up as we once again face another variant of COVID-19 together, as well as living life together. So again, my gratitude to you for being here. Please take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.